we're on a journey right now. Um, I don't even, I'm not even calling it a series. I plan on interviewing some people about this and just kind of loosely collecting our thoughts and fall around this uh, idea of a walk of faith. And this last week, we talked about um, the faith of mourning. And not mourning like as in wake up and eat breakfast. Morning and morning don't always happen at the same time. But, um, but mourning is in grief. And uh, I would really encourage you, I've said this a couple times this summer, I probably will go a year without suggesting people to go listen to a sermon on the podcast, but I would encourage you to listen to this last week. Um, because I believe it's gives context to what does it mean to mourn, not just to feel sad, but what does it mean to mourn with God and to mourn with the belief that you know, what is told to us in the Beatitudes is true, that those who mourn will be what? Comforted. So there's a, there's a faith there. And yeah, I just want to mention that. And we'll just continue. When we were praying this morning, uh, we do pre-service prayer back in the back, and we try to, you know, we pray through different needs in our community, we pray through the morning, we kind of just let the Spirit lead as we pray, Susanna leads that, thank you for doing that, Susanna, and uh, uh, it's very calibrating for me in the morning, get to collect thoughts, and one of the things that kind of came to our prayers, and, and in my own mind, was that what, I, what I'm really praying for over these coming months as we discuss prayer is that God would dispel lies that we have attached to the idea of what faith is. I think one of the lies that we were trying to go out this last week is the idea that faith and optimism are the same thing, or that they're can sometimes the faith that we're to walk in is a faith of mourning. And... And so I just want to encourage you that I, I feel like over the coming months, what I'm praying for is that God would increase our faith, yes, but that He would dispel and untangle lies that we've believed about faith that have limited us from walking in a richer, deeper faith. And I want to mention a couple things, too, before I get into it. Uh, I've been reading through the, the scriptures that are in the, the journal They've been really encouraging to me. Like I, you know, obviously try to spend a lot of time reading scripture, but I haven't been in either Job or Esther for a really long time. And I don't know if you get this way. How many of you have had a movie that you've seen a whole bunch of times and you don't see it for a long time and you watch it and you're a little bit more on the edge of your seat? And that's the way Esther has been. I mean, it's been hard for me to put the book down. I'm like, okay, I'll read this and set it down, but I'm like, I want to, you know, get the details of that story a little more because I just, it's been a while since I've been that book. So it's just been encouraging me. I just mentioned that to say, like, it's just been a fun time of reading. But neither here nor there, I'm going to jump into, uh, oh, well, there. one of the details that I'll bring up today came from one of those times. I read a story that became new to me again. And I don't know if that happens to you. Sometimes you read a story that you've read in the Bible a bunch of times, and then it just reveals itself as new again. But I'll mention that in a little bit. I'm going to read a poem to you. I uh, got to do this uh, talk with some investors last week about, it was like a, 
a kind of a dream of mine to do a talk on this, where I was a friend of mine actually was hosting a gathering of of investors in the space that we invest in, and I got to do a talk on poetry and technology, which is a seemingly contradictory or not even connected things, and uh, it was a fun it was a really fun conversation, and. I was, I don't really get nervous when I talk. When I showed up to the room, I was a bit more of a, you know, there's, there are a lot of creative people in the world that we kind of live in. But I was reading the room, I was like, man, these are some finance nerds. And there's some finance nerds in here. I do not know how this is going to go. But it, but it went well. And, and uh, I want to read to you the poem that I opened the discussion with. And I'll show you the picture that I showed, too. If you could pull that picture up. This is literally how I opened my talk. Oh, okay, we got a granulated picture of it. That is what you might know as a turtle, but but what is technically and what we in Texas called a terrapin. And uh, the do what? Terrapin. Terrapin, not terrapin. And do what? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, turtle, Texas. Um, but. Uh, they, it's a particular type of turtle, and I actually have, you could pull the screen, that image down because that granulation is bothering my mind. Um, I have this, uh, I can't find, I tried to find it this morning, but I have this old turtle shell. It's actually a terrapin shell, and I remember having this conversation where I, we found this thing. How many of you have found these old turtle shells that are like white, like they've, they've lost their color, they're moving it, they're kind of like fossilizing, and I found this turtle down at the, thank you. That's probably better than listening to me sniffle for an hour or 30 minutes, not an hour. Uh, and so, <laughs> 42, yeah, and a half, yeah. So I found this, this shell, and I remember having this conversation with my grandfather. We were down at his land, and he was like, that's a terrapin. And I was like, terrapin? I was like, turtle, you know. But this, it's a specific kind of turtle. And I'm going to read to you a poem I needed to give you context for that because if you didn't know what that meant, then the poem would make no sense to you. This is a po this is the poem written by Wendell Berry um, called the, the Terrapin. It says, The Terrapin and his house are one. Though he may go, he's never gone. He's housed within from nose to toe, a door, a floor, and no window. There's little room, the light is dim, his furniture is only him. He doesn't speak what he thinks about. Where no guest comes, a thought's a shout. He pokes along, he's in no haste. He has no map and no suitcase. He has no worries and no woes, for where he is is where he goes. Ponder this wonder under his dome, who wondering is always home. I love that last line, that this, uh, this terrapin, this turtle, is wondering, but he's always home. I realize that some people are stationary, but never home. Um, but one of the things that a poet does, I, I read that to talk about a poet for a minute. What a poet does is, in the most simple terms, they observe and they reflect on the overlooked details of life and they present the beauty the truth or the wisdom of these details 
in a way that you see them in a new light. It's like something simple as looking at a turtle can be this profound wisdom about what it means to be always restless and never at home. And I hope, after reading this poem, that you'll never look at the turtles. You'll look at the turtle and you'll examine all of life again. But that's the way, that's what poets do. And I was writing to work, and I don't know if I've mentioned her. If I have, forgive me. Sometimes when you tell stories in multiple contexts, you forget which ones you've told. So if I've told this, forgive me. But I, I have, uh, there's a woman who owns a, a resale shop, otherwise known as a thrift shop, uh, on, the, on the bike path going to the work. It's called Julia's Resale. And it's, I saw the, saw the shop and I was like, you know what, I want to go in there. They have like selling like Gatorade and Topo Chico and like people are popping in. It's in the middle of like, you know, the barrio. And so I pop in one day to get some Gatorade and I see Julia, who I think to be Julia, sitting there. About six, probably like 60-year-old Hispanic woman. And she's like, you know, you, you look around, I'll watch your bike. I'm like, okay. And as I walk to the other rooms, she turns on the lights in the other rooms because, first of all, there's no air conditioning on, and it's in Texas. And secondly, on the other rooms where the art is and where there's the different like books and different rooms, she has uh, she's turned off the lights. And so I realized, I started thinking, like, this woman is sitting here preserving and conserving the resources she has. Like, she's trying to be a good steward, and so... She's like taking care of me, making sure my bike is covered, turns on the lights, and then when I leave, she turns off the lights. And I, I walked away thinking, this woman is, is a steward. Like she thinks about every detail in the way she stewards. And so I came back a couple times. One time I come back and I say, tell me your story. How did you get started doing this? And she tells me, she's like, well, I moved to Dallas from San Antonio this, you know, 25 years, 30 years ago. She's like, I wanted to open up this shop. And she said, so I started doing garage sales. And she was like, she was like, I negotiated this rent for $100 a month. And I started selling. Sure enough, every story she told was a story about how she had been like really like good, good with the money. She's like, got a good rent deal. She had negotiated all the elements. And I say all that to say that God allowed me to see some detail about her just by walking in the shop. And when she started talking, I realized, oh, this actually is who she is. She actually is this person who, who thinks this way. And what God has been teaching me, although I am a slow learner, and I can definitively say that I am a slow learner, um, when I was in high school, I got approved to take the extended time SAT because the last section of the test I couldn't even finish half of the questions. And so I am a slow learner and, and, and slow worker. Um, but he's been teaching me as a slow learner to be a noticer of details. And I think one of the things when we think about faith as a context is that faith is predicated upon us being able to look and see what isn't as always plain and easy to see. 
is the unseen things. Like we have to be able in our walk of faith to see the unseen that God is working in. And so there's something about our faith is that yet we want to believe what God is doing and what he's saying. But when we but when we become noticers of his beauty and his people and what he's doing all around us, it allows us to be able to see and partner with and believe in what he's doing. So there's something in faith akin to noticing. And, and it's like I pray and I ask the Lord, like, God, open my eyes. Let me see people the way you see them. Let me see details. Let me see all the little things. And so I want to I notice, I want to mention a detail that it's one of these details that hits me every time, but I noticed it again when I read this chapter recently. And the, part of the reason that I noticed this detail is a pastor that, I've, that I admired forever drew this detail to light from this scripture, and it was so profound to me. And so now every time, just like us, maybe, maybe you'll look at a turtle differently. Like, every time I see the scripture, I can't unsee this detail that he called to attention. And so I'm going to read to you from John 2, 1 through 11. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. I'm going to blow my nose really quick. Hold on. Struggling here. Uh, okay. On the third day, wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus said, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for the ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the waters, the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and as the master of the banquet tasted the water and had been turned into wine, he did not realize where he had came from. come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So years ago, the detail that I heard a pastor make mention. It was Bill Johnson who was, who was speaking. And he talked about how Jesus says, and I've mentioned this, I don't know, 10 times in my years of pastoring. He talks about how Jesus tells his mother that it's not yet my time. And she then says to the servants, go do whatever he says. And so he, after saying it's not yet my time, decided, now since my mother says it is my time, it shall be my time. And he turns the water into wine. And it reveals how moved God is 
by those who love him and those he loves. It reveals how moved God is by those who love him and those he loves. Uh, Jesus, I want to say it in a different way. Jesus remained impressionable to others. Jesus remained impressionable to others. And God is impressionable to us. This is not something we talk about often, but God is impressionable to us. I want to make mention before continue on that thought that there are there are implications. You can all say, I'm not into theology, I'm not into doctrine, I'm not into whatever it is, but every one of you in, in some small way are a theologian. You all have thoughts and, and sort of ways in which you imagine or you see God to be. And there are implications to our lives and to the, our psychology and to the way we think, the way we operate in the world, to the theological persuasions that we have, whether they're conscious or unconscious or subconscious, uh, theological persuasions, there are implications. And when we have, let me give you an example, when we have an, a, a belief that there is only one exacto sort of plan in life that God has for us, the implication that comes to our hearts and minds is that God is unimpressionable. That he's unaffected by what we have to say. Let me explain it like this. If, if you believe that all of life is a series of choices where we get to say yes or to no to what God wants and you're either making the wrong move or the right move according to whatever God has said, then there really doesn't become any reason in prayer to ask God for anything. I guess you could argue that it's just obedience, like we pray out of obedience. Yet Scripture seems to argue through many, many stories the opposite, that God is impressionable, that He is movable by His people. I, I love the story of Abraham when God says that Sodom, there's been this incredible cry that has gone up against Sodom because they were doing these horrible things to people, unjust things to people. And so there was a, Scripture says there was a cry out against the unrighteousness of Sodom, and that that cry had reached God's heart, and He is going to deal with them. He is going to bring His judgment upon them. And Abraham says, well, God, wait a minute, what if there's 50 righteous people? How I many you know the story I'm talking about? What if there's 50 righteous people? And he says, okay, I will relent for 50. He's like, what if what about 40? You know, what about 30? What about, what, about, what about 10? And in all these situations, God relents to that which He had previously said He will do at the, at the request of one. He made Himself impressionable. He didn't just make Himself impressionable. He was impressionable to Abraham's prayer. Amen? Hezekiah, at the end of his life, for an almost selfish, almost purely selfish reason, had, had lived a righteous life, but had some missteps. He pleads with God for his life, because his life is going to be taken to him. And what does God do? Somebody extends it, 
15 years, yeah. 15 years, he extends it. I just want to keep making this statement to us. God is impressionable. He is movable. You, you can't make him do things that are against his character, but he's open to hear from us. God is impressionable. Everybody with me? I'll take this a little further. God, our God, is emotional. Isaiah 62.5 says, God will rejoice over you. He, he feels joy. Judges 2.18 says, For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. He felt joy. He felt pity. Psalm 78.40 says, He was grieved while Israel was in the desert. He's, he's not felt just joy, but pity. He's felt grief. I'll go a little further on this. Not only is he emotional, but he is, get this, all the guys in the room uh, who may think less of emotions, that, that's not true of our group. He is moved to do certain things based on emotion. Emotion is part of his character. Mark 6, 3, 34 says, And Jesus, when he came out and saw the great multitude, he was moved for what? Compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. The, the Scripture says, first, he was moved with compassion, and second, he did something with that. Numbers 32.13 says, So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all that generation had done evil in the sight of the Lord. So really hot take right now. God can get angry. I that has become controversial, I guess. God can become angry. It, and there's a difference between righteous judgment and insecure vindictiveness. Like, why do men try to vindicate themselves? Because they just feel offended. They're like, oh, just, you messed with my ego, so I'm going to get you back. God doesn't do anything based on that sort of logic. Like, every single thing... Any element of his judgment is based on his character of redemption and mercy, and that you cannot, you can't extract any part of God from any other part of God. It's not like he sets down the love thing and moves over to this thing. Everything he does is integrated with all the other things that he is simultaneously, always. That's hard for us to imagine because we sort of operate in modes. God just is always all of his things. Let's look at another reasonably significant time that God was moved to do something based on emotion. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave. I'm not relegating love to emotion, but emotion is an aspect of love. That He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should, perish, should not perish, but have everlasting life. I just want to make this point. God is impressionable. God is emotional, and He's moved to do things based on emotion and impression and our prayers and our thoughts. 
Everyone say these things with me. God is emotional. I feel like somebody just went, ah, I don't know if I can say that. God is impressionable. God is movable. So it's really important. I, I only wanted us to say these things because these are, this, theo, this, the theological understanding of God's impressionability, His ability to be moved, to feel, to be, it's so, in Scripture, it's overwhelming. I mean, if, as, as, if you think about it, you read, it's overwhelmingly in the narratives of Scripture. And, but it's sort of something that we don't really think about. We think of God as, as, as often as stoic, and, un, and, and we, we tr even try to find peace in Him because He's not moved. But that's just not the way He is. And we need a theology in our hearts and minds. We need a theology in our hearts and minds that sees God in this, this way. We, we do not find peace, and God does not bring us peace by shutting down emotions, but by having self-control over our emotions. We also have to have self-control over our thoughts, too. So it's not just our emotions. It's not like thoughts get to rule over emotions. They both are ruled by the Spirit, and we have what? Self-control. It's, it's one of the most annoying, annoying things to me. I hear every time I'm in an argument, I hear always a dude say, well, I'm just, I just base my stuff on the facts. I'm like, what the heck does that mean, first of all? And no, you don't, second of all, and you shouldn't, third of all. Because God actually invites us to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, all the things. The mind doesn't, the, the thoughts don't get to rule over the motions. God rules over all of it. And we submit ourselves to Him. Amen? So, anyway, I just, it's just an annoying thing to me that I, I hear people say that. We, we need a deep, true knowing that God is emotional and that He's impressionable. Like, Ephesians 1, this passage that I kind of like loosely quote when I pray every week, it says that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that He may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him or the knowing of Him, the eyes of your, that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know to the hope to which is calling what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. So I want to camp on just this thought for a second and move on. It's, it's that uh, the eyes of our understanding are enlightened. When, when Hebrews, this is in Greek, but these are Hebrews talking. When they talk about knowing, we're 2,000 years away from knowing what they mean by knowing. What we mean by knowing is we think of facts. We think of like these uh, intellectual understandings that we sort of adhere to. When they mean by knowing is a, is a bigger knowing. I, it's not, this is not me making it mushier than it is. It, like culturally, they mean knowing to be something more expansive than just intellectually agreeing with something. It is, it is the same understanding as a man knowing a woman. Like you don't, you don't believe upon the cross and you may know God's love is demonstrated by the cross, but you do not know everything that the cross has to reveal about self. It's something that you know, like bigger than just an intellectual knowing. 
we need bigger than an intellectual knowing. We need to feel and know and have our hearts enlightened to the understanding that God is emotional and that He is impressionable. That is a prayer. So I want to talk briefly, if God is impressionable, what does this mean about our lives? I'm going to finish just talking about prayer for a moment. Uh, Matthew 7, 7 7-12. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to blow my nose. Can somebody get me another... I've exhausted the extent of this napkin's resources. Uh, like nine people. Uh, <laughs> All right, Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. You will find. Knock and it will be first opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. What man is there among you if his son asks for bread will give him a stone, or if asks for fish will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do. Do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Okay. I'm going to try to be quicker, but hit the point. How many of you struggle? Let me, let me say it. Let me say what I, what I sometimes struggle with, with prayer. It's a little weird that God is all-knowing, all-loving, and all these things, and He wants me to like, ask him to do something that I think he might already want to do. How many of you have ever struggled with this idea? Like, I'm like, oh God, like, make me more loving. It's like, it feels weird, just to be honest, at times. I'm just being, like, there are times when it doesn't feel weird to me, but there are times when I'm like, why would I beg God or ask God or pursue God to do something which God wants to do already and already knows needs to be done? That's a, that's a, it's a kind of a weird thought. And I would say in my walk of faith, there's a shift on this over the years. Where growing up, we talked about it in our pre-service prayer, but growing up I had this like prayer understanding that like the way that you prayed with great faith was you just like prayed longer and louder and more energetically than those around you. And that was an example of what it meant to be a person of great faith and prayer. And not that that was all the examples I had, but we'll say some of the examples. And, and so over the years, the way my mind started orienting with prayer was, especially as I learned about liturgy, was I, I believed uh, maybe more so that prayer was that which was forming me to trust God not the place where I was primarily asking him to do things. And so it, it might be like, like I need to pray about peace, not because God was going to send me peace, but because I needed to be a little bit more at peace. Or I need to pray about love, not because God needed to do something supernatural, but just that, that in, in the sort of almost like, I hate saying it this way, I don't think I ever thought of it quite this reduc- reductionistic, but almost like a cathartic thing. How many of you have ever kind of like almost felt like, like I, I've not been there, but like 
it almost like starts bleeding over that if, if I just if I pray about these things enough, then I will be formed in these things. And I would say that like I less of my prayer shifted around was oriented around my desires and needs and more around just like praying these things that would form me more deeply. Now let me pause and say I believe that prayer is formational. I believe that that's part of part of prayer is to remind us of who we are to be. But I do not believe that it is the only part of prayer. I'll tell you this quick story. Recently, Eden has decided that she wants an iPad. She can't get a phone, so she wants an iPad. She asks us for an iPad five days a week, sometimes three times a day, five days a week. <laughs> and she's like, so dad. This is how she approaches it. She's like, so dad. This would be a great time for you and mom to have a conversation about the iPad. And, and, and like, totally, I'm not even exaggerating her mannerism. Like, that's, that's exactly how she does it, you know. She might, I mean, I might be in the middle of just, like, writing a sermon or, like, drinking a coffee. And she'd be like, great time for the conversation, Dad. And I'll tell you this. I don't know if she's getting an iPad. But it has, like, made me think about it more as a father, and secondly, it's made me think about what is it that she wants? She wants an iPad, but what is it that she really wants? Like, I'm aware of this desire. And it's just back to this noticing thing, like God, He's allowing me to notice something about her. And God wants to hear our desires. Like a kid asking for an iPad he wants to be asked for things. And we are like, like we have to be willing to ask God for that which we desire. I believe this is so biblical. And I want to, uh, I want to pause for a moment and I want, I want to do a bit of prayer and then we'll finish. I want to do a bit of prayer I want to see if God might do some inner healing um, on the issue of prayer. And so I just want to have you close your eyes for a moment. And I'm just going to ask you this simple question. Have you stopped asking God for what you desire? It's a simple question. Has life taught you not to ask Him for what you want or need? Just keep closing our eyes for a minute. If feel like that a yes resonates with you. Just raise your hand. A little quick wave at me. Thank you. Lord, I pray for everyone who has stopped and those who have not started that you would empower us to ask you, to ask you for that which we want.
even the things we don't think are best things, I know that you will reform our desires. Amen. Let me keep going for one second, and then we're going to pray at the end. I want to come back to this um, kind of second part of this prayer thing. Matthew seven eleven at the very, at the end of this time it says, "If you've been being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask Him?" So, does He want to give good gifts? Yes. So the question is, what happens when God waits for us to ask Him for what we want? If it's kind of strange to to think, like I'm asking God to do things He already wants to do, that He knows He should, He can do, you know, all those things, then what? What's the purpose? What happens when God waits for us to ask Him? Um, it, reminds, it reminds us of the three truths that we were talking about earlier. Or one, I should say, these three truths, one of them we were talking about earlier. First of all, that he's movable, he's impressionable. When I ask him something, he moves. It reminds us of that. It reminds us that we should ask him for more things. Secondly, it also reminds us what Matthew 7.11 says, that he is the ultimate giver of good gifts. I think that we've started to believe that the journey of maturity is is one of letting go desires. But actually the journey of maturity is not letting go of desires. It is the journey of letting all your desires go before God and trust in Him. We aren't on a journey to to being Stoics, unmoved. That's not even what God is. He doesn't want that from us. We're on a journey of trusting Him with our desires. And God wants our heart to be formed in generosity. I, I'm going to skip a few passages just because and, and mention. So I have like a very this is my opinion and I think this is founded in Scripture that when God waits for us to ask Him for things, especially pursue Him for things, when those things come to us, we become attached to God in the process of Him giving. We see Him as the giver. When we ask and pursue, and it doesn't just come like, boom, without us asking or pursuing, we attach that goodness to Him as the giver. There's countless psalms that I could reference where David says something I'll briefly mention. He says, But certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. How would David, if something good happened to him, how would he know that God did it? By praying. He, is, he associates that in his prayer. The, the, the best one 
is, is the story of, of Hannah, who is barren. And she weeps. She weeps before God. She, she weeps before God. Like she's so weeping that, that Eli is like, sees her as a drunk woman. And she's praying. And, and she says, oh God, if you would just give me a son. Let me read the scripture. So the Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. 1 Samuel 1.20 So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked from him from the Lord. Samuel means God has heard. So do you think that Hannah has any perception that there was anything else? It's like, why would, why would there be a barren woman in the first place? Why would there be a woman suffering? Why wouldn't God just answer, like, just solve it before she ever has this issue, before she's ever weeping on a floor? I could tell you why. Because when she stands there rejoicing, she only has one person to attribute goodness and mercy to. And if that answer had come apart from her weeping, apart from her prayer, I don't know. The last thing I want to mention briefly about that passage, when she prayed, Eli answered and said, when she was weeping, he says, and she articulated her prayer, he said, go in peace, and then the God of Israel will grant your petition which you have asked him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. This is before God answered the prayer. So there's three things that happened when she was barren. First, she prayed. First, she prayed. Secondly, God answered in that prayer in a way that was demonstrably and clearly Him answering her prayer. And she had no doubt about it. The third thing, though, that happened before he ever answered the prayer is her heart was put at ease in the process of praying. God doesn't just answer the prayer. He doesn't just call us to prayer. When we come to Him in prayer, He eases our heart as we await for Him to answer that which we come to Him with. So when we're uneasy about things, we can come to Him to prayer. And the formation that's happening is He brings peace. But as we keep coming, He will answer the prayer so that we know that He is the one who gave us the gift. Because He wants us to know how much He loves us. So why does God want us to ask, seek, and knock? He wants us to know He's impressionable. But He also wants to know that all good things come from Him. I'll, I'll finish with this analogy. How many of you have ever heard a, a intercession described as like bowls in heaven? Have <laughs> you ever heard this? You put a bunch of prayers in the heaven bowl and then it tips over. Like God, there was enough prayers that went before God and it, you know, it finally tipped over. How many of you have heard this analogy? I won't, <laughs> I won't fully dismiss this analogy. Let me tell you the way I see it. This is, this is not, this is my way of creating a picture out of what I see in the Scripture. This isn't Bible. 
this is a picture that Jordan is coming up with. So I just want to be clear about that. But I, but I believe this is, is a good picture. I think we imagine prayers a lot of times, and we imagine faith, like, if I pray enough prayers, like, it will, God will finally be ready to pour out. He'll finally be ready to be moved to pour himself out. This, as I was praying about it, thinking about it this morning, the way the Lord showed it to me, and I don't believe that this is an absolute metaphor, just the way I, I saw it, is that it's more like there's a bowl in our own hearts. That the more that we pray, and I don't know that it's quantitative, I don't know how to equate it. There's a certain level of faith that comes in us that when that prayer gets answered, the bowl has filled up that when that prayer gets answered, we will know that it was God who did it. God brings the, our faith to the point that when He answers the prayer, we will not, we will be able to believe that He is the one who answered the prayer. It's not about God getting enough brownie points of our prayer that He finally gets moved. It's about Him waiting for our faith to grow in a way that we will see Him as the giver of good gifts as He gives the gifts. I don't know if this is like translating exactly like if 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 i give all of my kids gifts at christmas if they all come from santa claus they don't think they don't think about dad giving them good gifts because it's placed on this other imaginary thing when that when you know that that gift comes from your father it says something to you about your father when we ask and we seek and we knock there's this increasing awareness in the asking, in the seeking, in the knocking, that we become filled with faith in a way that when that thing presents itself, it's only Him that could have answered that prayer. Faith is the increasing conviction that only God can answer your prayers. As that conviction rises and God answers a prayer, we become more and more likely to only attribute the goodness of the answer to Him. And He wants our hearts attached to Him when He gives the good gifts. Um, let's pray. God, I pray that You would uh, make us people of great faith. Not people who think that you need one more extra. But people realizing that in this walk of faith, you're increasing our conviction that it's only you who gives good gifts. It's only you that we can come to our desires with unafraid. And knowing that you will answer prayer. Even if it is not the way that we imagine it. You hear. You respond. I pray, because um, I know, God, that you've given us authority. I know you've given me authority by your Spirit. And I pray that there would be a breaking 
There would be a breaking of this belief that you don't answer prayer and that there's no reason to pray. I pray that you would break that in Jesus' name. And I pray that you would break that belief in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord, that you are giving good and wonderful gifts. In Jesus' name.